Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm lovely. Thank you. I We are in commission land um, excitement again this morning, right? Yes. <laughs> so for listeners who, who are joining us for their first episode, if you look backwards in your uh, whatever service it is that you pick up our episodes from, you will see that we are in um, a series. We're doing a series of commissions and commission reports. And the, the whole theory is that we will tell you the precipitating event. We will tell you the membership of the commission. We will tell you what the commission concluded. And then we will tell you what changes it brought about, um, if there are any. And sometimes there are and sometimes there aren't. Spoiler. Um, and then if there are conspiracy theories tied to a commission's work, we will also talk to you about that. So what commission are we doing today, Augie? Well, today we're going to look at the Brownlow Commission, formerly known as the President's Committee on Administrative Management. I'll bet that's more exciting than it sounds like. Oh, well, hopefully it will be. Because, <laughs> okay. I mean, that name be. isn't all that thrilling, to be honest. No, it isn't. So, on one hand, it doesn't sound all that exciting. And, and I will grant you that, Nia. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, and in contrast to the other commissions we've already done, like the uh, Warren Commission uh, or the Rogers Commission after you know uh, uh, the, 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 the space, uh, space shuttle uh, disaster uh, catastrophe. Okay, this commission arose not because of any particular event or you know, specific phenomenon. Um, it wasn't like um, there was a crisis in the office of the president. I was going to say a sudden crisis in the administrative state. Yeah, right. I mean, because <laughs> what let's would that look like? That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, because let's face it, Nia, prior to the 1930s, most of the government activity was still at the state and local level, right? Uh, I mean, you could plausibly make the argument that the Great Depression, okay, led to a huge paradigm shift in regards to which level of government in the United States should address a major public policy problem like a depression, right? Right, because that's from what from previous discussions and this will show you that i have listened to you over the over the last couple of years um, <laughs> you're you're talking about interstate commerce you're talking about interstate travel you're talking about movement between states where people are trying to go for jobs and employment that kind of so a lot of that would rise to the federal level because of that interstate connectedness yeah because one you know, state would not be able to address yeah, because we're now 50 to 60 years into industrialization, okay? And the reality is with that kind of economy, what was purely intrastate versus 
interstate across state lines, okay, that became blurred, right? Right. So, you know, you know, and, and, and if you think about the reasons why we had a Great Depression in the late 1920s, early 1930s, there wasn't a single reason, okay, in each of the 50 states. No, there were a, a wide array of complicated reasons why we had a Great Depression. Hence why there are many books on the topic as opposed to yeah, right? sort of a 10-page treatment that you could just, okay, here's, here's what you need to know. It's way more complicated than that. It's, yeah. it's failures so, in agriculture, but it's also failures in the markets and overheating and borrowing on margin. I mean, there's lots of things that go into it. Yeah. So there wasn't necessarily a precipitating event, okay, but the reason why President Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, wanted this Committee on Administrative Management um, was that when he came into office, he and many of his advisors concluded the federal government, okay, but particularly the executive branch, was ill-equipped to respond to an economic crisis like the Great Depression. Okay. Um, okay, and he thought that he would have a better chance at convincing Congress to, uh, if you will, reconfigure the executive branch of the federal government if he actually had a commission study it. Okay. Okay. That was part of his logic. Okay. So kind I of, sort of a precipitating event is the Great Depression, but only in the vaguest terms, not the way these others had an immediate precipitating event. Of that, right? You the know, assassination, that assassination, the, the shuttle, 9-11, the attacks on 9-11, right? Those well, are all very specific things specific. you can point to. This is sort of a generalized angst about how, about the response and, and the capability of response. Response, that's right. Okay. 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 So, that's one of the differences of the Brownlow Commission compared to the commissions we have previously discussed. And for that matter, we are thinking about discussing in future podcast episodes, right? Okay. Um, another big difference, the size of the commission. Yeah, from your notes, and <laughs> readers, I don't know if you noticed, but Augie makes notes for us um, often on these topics. And if, if, by the way, if I'm in charge of one, then I make notes. That's, that's how that works. Um, that's what research geeks do for each other. Uh, <laughs> apparently, there are only three members. Yes, there were only three committee, committee members. How right? is that even a committee? <laughs> like three <laughs> members doesn't even seem like it's enough to call it a committee. It's, it would be like the teeny tiny committee on administrative management. It, 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 Others it have had big, like lots of members and big staff. Staffs. And, yeah. And, 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 and I mean, comments, did, it implies it, that he doesn't even really want a solution. He just wants to <laughs> pretend to throw a, a, a solution at the problem. But or uh, did he uh, just uh, think uh, highly of these individuals? Well, I mean, in, in part, I mean, I, I got to just pause and just say this. Mia's comments definitely reflect, one, uh, our previous discussions uh, of other commissions. But two, 
It also betrays the fact that me and I work for a large bureaucracy, VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, where, you know, any committee. Oh, okay. if there was a committee of three people, we'd be like, well, are you just not done adding people to it or? <laughs> yeah, you quite obviously are not taking this seriously. Exactly. Just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, because you only put three people on it. Oh, isn't that terrible? We're jaded. We're yeah, jaded we by so, committee size. Yeah, we, we, are think, so, we think size yeah. of committee matters. Yes, right. Um, no, I mean, Roosevelt's thinking on this was, who are the leading experts in the country at reorganizing the executive branch of government? Um, and, and to put this in historical context, um the progressives the progressive movement at the turn of the 20th century um uh advocated for good government and many good government reforms at that time started or were tried at the local and state level and then were adopted by the federal government okay so he picked the leading experts on how to reform the executive branch. And by most accounts, the three experts were Lewis Brown, Brownlow, Charles Miriam, and Luther Gulick. Okay, those were the three experts. So as far as Roosevelt was concerned, why do I need more people? <laughs> okay, okay, well, I mean. Okay. When you think about, okay, that makes sense to me. When you think about people who now are experts in the Great Depression, uh, Bernanke comes to mind, right? Because he studied that yeah. and made it his life passion. And there's like probably three or four other guys that are like Bernanke. I don't know that you would need more than that if you, if you were trying to get at the actual heart of how to prevent this or how to do whatever. Well, if, it, it, if it you also knew too, who the experts were. I mean, this is 1930s politics in the United States. So um, uh, issues or concerns of diversity and representation uh, were not a focus. Uh, right, okay. fair point. Um, Roosevelt quite clearly um, didn't want the Congress in, involved because as far as progressives were concerned, legislative driven government okay was a big part of the problem okay wow has that changed <laughs> okay i mean i'm just saying living in 2021 that's so, a different I, world view than progressives okay. now okay so i mean i mean you got to understand that you know when putting together this committee the, uh, what became known as uh, the brownlow commission uh, uh, because uh, um, uh, it was chaired by Lewis Brownlow, okay? Um, you know, you had different political, if you will, concerns or values. Um, and as far as FDR was concerned, he wanted or needed an intellectual justification for basically what he wanted to do when he came in the office, which was basically take control of the federal government and have the federal government respond to the Great Depression. Okay, so is that, 
so we're going to get to their conclusions in a second. I'm assuming that's part of it. But can we give a shout out to the poor person who was the one research staffer? Oh, yes. Okay. Mr. This Joseph Harris <laughs> must have had a terrible job. Yes. I'm going to need you. He, first of all, he had three scholars asking him to look for things. And you know they were all asking him to look for different things. And might, just as a library geek moment, he did not have anything anywhere close to an electronic database, not even remotely. In some cases in the 30s, he wouldn't have even had comprehensive indexes that he could look at, right? So, I mean, a huge amount of that was the kind of digging that students now would say, oh, this is not even possible. Like, yes. it's not possible for me to find this piece of information. This was pencil on paper research gathering. Right. right. And it was looking in 964,000 books to find the one piece of information and then moving on to the next piece of information that you need. Like, it would have been painstaking. It's surprising to me that their report came out within a year with oh, one, yeah. I mean, with I mean, one research mean, staffer. I mean, think about if they were trying to use examples from state and local government, he would have to call on a landline, okay? Assuming that people on the other end had a landline. Landline, okay, because many Americans, okay, still did not have phones in the 1930s, particularly after the depression hit, because they couldn't pay their phone bills. And oh yeah, by the way, why would you need a phone if your office or your home was foreclosed on? Right. Okay. Right. But then, then he would have to have copies made, okay, um, or original hard copies sent by snail mail, right? I mean, there wasn't overnight delivery in the 1930s, folks. No. No. And, you know, to say, oh, he'll just hop in his car and drive cross country. Now we can drive cross country on Highway 40 or 66 or... I don't remember which one goes across the top of the country. Interstate 80. 80. Yeah, right? 80, 80 But goes those from, interstates, yes. you can get in your car and drive relatively quickly across the country. You could probably do that in, if you, I mean, you would need to be careful about how long you drove each day, but what, max three days? But in the 30s, you don't have the interstate highway system yet. You you don't have vehicles that are intended to go that far. So like saying to Mr. Harris, I'm gonna need you to hop out to California and pick up all these documents. That just wasn't gonna happen. He was either gonna to have to go by train yes. or he was gonna to have to have a courier come with it by train. Like, yeah, this is yeah. not a this is not a small undertaking in the time that it's being done and by one poor person who had to manage all that painstaking process painstaking yes. all right and, and by the way uh, before we we get to uh, its conclusions uh, for our listeners um, um, and, and Bill Newman uh, uh, our uh, frequent guest on the podcast uh, colleague in the political science department um, uh, who knows the American presidency uh, he and I have discussed this the Brownlow Commission, Okay, was one of five presidential or executive branch commissions 
in the last 90 years on our country's history. You have Brownlow. Oh, the rest were done by? Other presidents, okay? So Truman okay. and Eisenhower actually employed former President Herbert Hoover, who by all accounts was a disaster as a president, but as a bureaucrat, he was well-respected. He was employed twice by consecutive presidents, Truman and Eisenhower, to discuss reorganizing the executive branch and or the presidency. During the Reagan administration, we have the Grace Commission. And not to be undone, President Bill Clinton had his vice president, Al Gore, do the National Performance Review, Reinventing Government. I remember right? that one. Okay. Um, I mean, and so that's funny. What we're basically the president's basically getting in there and say, man, we need to reorganize this mess. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently they do it pretty often. They do it pretty often. For, okay. But, but we still, okay. But we still have them saying, man, we got to reorganize this mess. <laughs> right. I mean, and one of the great ironies is, okay, we have a constitutional system, okay, that in writing, is supposed to be legislative centered, but basically since Roosevelt in the 1930s, our federal government's been dominated by presidents, but we haven't come to agreement on how it should be organized, um, who it should be responsive to, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it is truly fascinating. You know, as somebody who studies the constitution and public administration, I'm just like, wow, man, we just keep on reinventing the wheel and we seem to be getting farther and farther away from the model that was laid out in the constitution. And, and, and it makes you wonder, well, should we have an executive focused federal government? I don't know, right? We can't seem to get it correct <laughs> right yeah and yet presidential power grab is an ongoing oh, oh my goodness yes right? i mean no nobody who runs for president has ever said i'm gonna keep that power back like yeah. that's just not yeah elect me and i'm gonna go ahead and uh, uh give a whole bunch of power back to congress yeah they've not but then again as you and i have discussed in the past congress seems to be okay with that because yes. part of what comes along with that is accountability and blame if the president is the is the lead on something and he or i my hope is someday she screwed up then the congress can say it wasn't us we didn't do it that was the president that did that yeah yeah that was the so president there, it's, or, and it's or that was avoid. yeah and or that was the bureaucracy okay? right our hands are clean we created the policy um, and uh, uh, those idiots in the executive branch bollocks it up, right? right. <laughs> so, so, but okay. Brownlow's our first of five. First of five, yes. Okay. Um, and it starts off with a bang. On page five of the Brownlow Commission report, it boldly says, quote, the president needs help. The president <laughs> needs help. 
And they didn't mean that personally. Like, man, this president's a nut bar and he needs help, right? Like, (laughs) that's not what they meant. They meant the office of the president. The office of the president needs help. (laughs) Okay. Uh, It is a 53-page report with 37 recommendations. There's no fluff in this thing, right? Wow. Okay. We got uh, just to, for listeners' edification. I don't know that we've had a report that short since. No, because <laughs> they tend to go into extreme detail when they can. Oh, okay, hundreds, if not thousands, of pages. Which right? one could argue that they're trying to bury things in by you know, if I hand you a thousand-page report, you're not going to read the whole thing. Like you and I and. James Keck are probably the only people on the planet who have thoroughly read the 9-11 Commission report. report right. I would be willing to bet that people who wrote chunks of it haven't read the whole thing. Yeah, and there's, yet, there, there's some who are like, hey, I handled uh, chapters three and four. Okay, I'm exhausted. I can't read any more of this. Exactly. <laughs> and just leave me alone. So, but 57 pages, basically what they're expecting was that that would be read. Yes. Because that's a short document. That's yes. a and, and it was pretty clear, yeah, it was pretty clear at the onset, Roosevelt was hoping um, that this would be a report read by Congress. Um, and I mean, and, and again, not to disparage members of Congress today or back then, but if you've ever worked for a member of Congress, if you can't put down what you are thinking in roughly a page, a page and a half, they're not going to read it. Right. <laughs> okay. Clerks take hundreds of pages of legislative documents and turn them into paragraphs that's right this is roughly about blah 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 think of them in terms of the news media when the news media reports to you on something like the aca which was better than a thousand pages they they give you a a minute soundbite because and sometimes not even a minute long there's no way they're going to cover all of the material that's in that document yeah, I mean, but they're going to get in, you know, they're going to get the highlights. Nia, I did an internship with a U.S. senator uh, in the 1980s. Uh, the first day uh, I was on the job um, and I was told that occasionally I would have to write um, executive summaries of, you know, like 200 page bills. <laughs> the senator's chief of staff said, Augie, a good way to think about this is, if the senator cannot read it, okay, while they are walking to the restroom and back, then it's too long. <laughs> I was just like, so what I write is only going to be consumed as they are walking to and from a destination. Yes. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, well, that's good to know. <laughs> well, and in fairness to them, when when congress is doing its job there is a lot of legislation a lot of legislation and the idea that they could read thousands and thousands and thousands of pages i mean think about yourself as a human i know you read really fast augie and i read really slow so between the two of us we probably average out but but but, nia there's there's no no way there's there yeah there's no way that most uh, uh, humans would it would be able to read every single 
uh, everything written uh, or put in proposed legislation. Yeah, it's, I mean, just, it, it's, it's just too much. Okay, it's just too no. much. It, when they're working, I mean, when they're yeah. doing their jobs. If if yeah. you, a good uh, rule of thumb, I suspect for Congress is if they have time to read it, there's not enough going on. Oh sure. Because you know, but so anyway, so the first thing is they so on page five they put up a white flag. Hey, oh yeah, they, SOS. They, we need yeah. help. <laughs> yes. Okay. Right. Um and uh. uh the main, if you will, recommendation um, uh, coming from the Brownlow Commission um, is the executive office of the president. And we're gonna uh, discuss that in more detail here in just a couple moments. Um, but uh, the executive office of the president uh, was actually passed into law by Congress with the Reorganization Act of 1939. Okay. So before that, there was not an executive office of the president? Uh, no. Uh, Hoover, uh, in the late 20s, uh, convinced Congress to give him money to add staff to the West Wing to advise and help him. But Congress felt so little about that, they actually put a veto a legislative veto on how Hoover could spend that money. So if he went ahead and wanted to hire, for instance, a budget person or a policy person, Congress could go ahead and say, yeah, no, we don't think so. <laughs> wow. We've come a long way, haven't we? Oh my goodness, yes. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, uh, but I think it's important for people to get an idea of of how little support the president had at that point, because at one point a while back in one of the episodes, and I can't remember, I'm sorry, which one, you were indicating to me that they didn't have a formal press office. That's correct. Like, yeah. even something as simple as how we communicate from the president to the people didn't exist formally. Well into the late 1800s, uh, Nia, uh, the office of the president did not have uh, a press office. Uh, because again, the dominant branch of the federal government was the Congress. Uh, newspapers were the main form of media. It's not until you get into the era of the modern president, starting with Teddy Roosevelt, you know, going forward, that there was any discernible need for a communications office within the office of president. See, and now we just live and die by communication. So it's such an interesting, oh sure, to me concept that the first hundred years people are like, yeah, we don't really need to tell people what we're doing, yeah, and I mean, and that the president was such a relatively minor figure that yes. Congress just was that. So basically, the way that if you were drawing a Venn diagram, the giant circle in the middle would be the Congress. And then off to one side, there'd be a circle for the president. For the president and president. off to the other side, there'd be the circle for the Supremes. Yes. And then other, and, and, and you wouldn't have to draw a circle that constituted the bureaucracy because there wasn't much of one. Right. There'd be nothing surrounding the outside. There'd just be those three with one giant circle in the middle. And then two, it would look like Mickey Mouse. 
yes the one big circle and the two little circles off to the side yes and a cake like one little hangover between president and um and supreme court right because we've had one president who's served on both but yeah not it's funny to me that now those circles are very different sizes yeah because the president has has huge influence oh yeah in, i mean in what people when people think of the government the first thing they think of is the president well i mean and then and, they and think of congress yeah and it's not only domestically i mean think about the rest of the world okay right i mean we come the rest of to the... meet your president we come to yeah, I well, mean, and are, we worry about your elections and who you're electing president, not who you're electing Speaker of the House. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, the the uh, the Prime Minister of Great Britain um, doesn't necessarily want to meet with Speaker of the House Pelosi right. or Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, or for that matter, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court John Roberts. Right? You know, they want to know, hey, when's your new president going to, you know? call me on the phone so we can discuss uh, when we're going to renew our unique historical relationship. Right. right. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Um, you know, because the president is the face of the United States to the rest of the world. And there's some leveraging of those relationships that are personal. Sure. That yes. go on that are very different than the way you would leverage relationships in Congress. Okay. So they have... So they create the executive office of the president, the, the branch, or yes. the, sorry, the office there. Yeah. So, I mean, basically the Brownlow Commission is one of the most famous studies within the discipline of public administration in the United States, because it reflected, if you will, two intellectual foundations of the modern administrative state. First, the progressive movement's argument that we could get better government in this country if government, okay, was executive focused. Progressives argued that legislative centered democracy was corrupt. It was inefficient, oftentimes ineffective, and certainly not economical. So if you wanted to get Okay, better at the three E's of government administration, efficiency, effectiveness, and economy, you had to take away a lot of the legislature's power and authority. And that was the progressives, right? And the progressives had already tried this stuff out at the local and state level, right? So by the time it got to the federal government, it had become accepted wisdom in you know, many states and local governments across the country. Okay. The second, the second intellectual trend it represented um, is this country's longstanding private sector envy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was trying to be, you know, diplomatic in saying it, but I mean, historically in this country, the government has been compared to the private sector in regards to administration. Why can't the government operate more like a business? Well, the Brownlow Commission said we could 
have it operate more like a business. What we are advocating here is an executive focused federal government. The president in effect would become the CEO of the country. And like any good CEO, they need staff that is responsive to the CEO. So if you think about a CEO of a corporation, right? Yeah, you never call up and get the CEO. No. I, like if I called Amazon, I'm not going to give Jeff Bezos on the yeah. phone. <laughs> I'm going to, if I can escalate, and I probably wouldn't, it would take me forever to escalate up to the level where I even got somebody who staffs his office. And yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Good luck with that, Nia. <laughs> exactly. But I'm sure that if I did manage to get to that, there are even within that section layers and people that you talk to because there are people who deal with certain problems and he they never rise to him they don't go to him because the theory is that he's thinking giant thoughts and doing whatever at the executive what do they call that the 50,000 foot level instead of the 10 foot level right so yeah i mean i mean if you think so, about the I mean, you know if you think about the modern corporation you have the ceo but then you have unit heads Okay, right. who report directly to the CEO. They don't report to the shareholders. They don't report to the consumers. They report to the CEO. They have their job, okay, because the CEO wants them, okay, to do various tasks necessary for the CEO to be successful. Why? Because the CEO has been hired to run the corporation. Right. Right. And so you have the chief financial officer and you have the chief, um, I think now they're calling them people officers instead of human resources, which is a little creepy to me. But, and then you have your head technology guy and you have your right, so you have that level and then they all have people underneath them who report yes. up to them. Yes. And then about four layers down from that is a person that I as a consumer would Might actually get to, to speak yeah. to. I, I tell so, you what, if I ever called Amazon and Jeff Bezos answered the phone, I'd probably drop my phone because I wouldn't know what to do. You know what I mean? Like, uh, oh, I, I would think should that do I got, that sometime just to freak people out. I, I would think I got the wrong number or I was I was being punked. Right. <laughs> That's OK, true. I'd probably think I was being punked. you're not Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, yeah. Uh -huh. so and. So he gets a staff then out of this because of the way the commission says, yeah, no, that's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, and, and, there, and there's even an acronym um, uh, for uh, uh, what they want the office of president to achieve. Paused CORB, planning, organizing, staffing, director, directing, coordinating, reporting, and budgeting. Uh, back before uh, acronyms were easy to say. Yes, right. They and should. Again, they should have thought about that in terms of USA Patriot. Yeah, right. I mean, in, 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 base, <laughs> in, in, in basically, um, you know, the, the elements came, you know, almost directly from private sector. Yeah, right? all of that sounds businessy and MBA-ish like to me. Yes. Okay. 
We want an executive branch that will plan the work of the government. The executive branch, okay, will organize the government. The executive branch, of course, should staff the government. Okay, the president as CEO should direct what the executive branch does, not Congress, okay, the president, okay. The executive office of the president will coordinate, okay, all the various executive branch agencies. Those agencies should report to somebody in the office of the president. And of course, we got to get the budget out of the hands of Congress because members of Congress you use the federal government's budget as their own you know, personal pinata, right? Right, and what listeners need to remember is this is in a time when pork barrel was a- Oh, was like an it art was form. How, it was how things got done. It was an art right. form, right? I need this yes. thing, and so I will give you a, a, a bridge in your local area that will be constructed in your local area, sort of bring jobs and blah, 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 right? Or, um, I'm going to give up this thing in order to get an Air Force base in my in my district because that's going to bring jobs and influence and yeah pork pork was a it was an amazing tradition and it was also sort of the way um, I think of pork barrel as the guys with giant cigars in dark rooms right with chips basically saying i'll give you this and you give me that and somebody else gets this and we're all happy or we're all equally unhappy well i mean in the federal government budget had so many line items that were earmarked for specific congressional districts or states right right so there wasn't a budget expert in the executive branch that said yeah, we should have a bridge to nowhere Alaska because that makes sense. No, we have money to create a bridge in nowhere Alaska because, uh, you know, you know, Ted Stevens, a well-known senator from Alaska, was just like, I want a bridge for nowhere Alaska. And I'm not making that up, guys. That was actually, <laughs> okay. An earmarked, <laughs> okay, pork barrel project. Was the okay. bridge to nowhere. <laughs> yeah, a bridge to nowhere, right? That benefited all of about maybe 10 to 20 Alaskans. Yeah, but okay. he got it. They got it, right? Okay. I mean, you know, if you've ever driven through West Virginia, right? So many parts of that state are named for a well-known former Senator, Robert Byrd of West Virginia. <laughs> Why? Because he earmarked money for roads, okay, rest stops, okay. Heck, he even got the FBI's research lab located in West Virginia, right? Okay, I mean, that's what happened. Okay, so, just as a side note, it actually went to a city called Ketchikan. Yes, yeah. And it's the Gravina Island Bridge. Yes. But it became known as the Bridge to bridge Nowhere. To nowhere. And if you've ever been to Ketchikan, you will know that's because there's about, I don't know, probably 1,500 permanent residents in Ketchikan. Ketchikan is a tourist town. Yes. 
and it was yep. to get it was to encourage tourism and now by the way cruise ship stops there so well. he did amazing things for ketchikan by like he did what he was supposed to do for his constituents that's the thing is that almost all pork barrel projects were about your your constituents and what what you could do to improve them their situation because that would get you reelected like that's the whole and one could argue that is in fact the job of any senator or congressperson is to look out for your district and fight to get as much of the federal money um effort yeah, I mean, treasure I mean, yeah, as you can possibly get you know one of the long-standing criticisms of congress okay is that congress doesn't represent their constituents members of congress don't represent their constituents okay well but when they do we then criticize the institution of congress right okay for engaging in you know wasteful corrupt okay uh you know uneconomical practices that cost the country money right exactly you know, it, it is the paradox of the modern Congress. On one hand, okay, you know, the, 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 the public hates the institution. On the other hand, okay, um, we reward members of Congress who bring home the pork. Well, and we don't like it in other people's districts, but we want it in our district. Yeah, right? Well, our bridge to nowhere is different than your bridge to nowhere, right? Like, it, it's not, but we... So it is, it is that horrible thing that people do where they say, well, I mean, I like it when my senator does it, but I don't like it when your senator does it. Well, okay, but that's how these things work, either fairly or unfairly. Well, and yeah, some I mean, people, uh, like you it, were it, saying, it, it, some it, people are brilliant at it. Ted Stevens was brilliant at it. Bird was brilliant at it. Jesse Helms was brilliant at it. People, people who could look across the landscape and play the game. And they got amazing stuff for their for their for their state. One could argue that Nancy Pelosi is one of the greatest players of the game in the modern era. Um, I mean, how long, how many times has she been speaker, right? And she's how much stuff goes to California? Well, she, and particularly her district, which covers San Francisco, right? right? She's mean, a on. powerful. Yeah, right. Powerful congressperson who has learned to play the game. And so, I mean, you know, in Mia, you've heard me tell tell uh, uh, tell stories uh, when we have not been recording uh, about uh, a, a well-known uh, House of Representative member from my fine state of Pennsylvania uh, who covered my hometown. Um, he represented our uh, my hometown, uh, John Murtha. Okay. Uh, John Murtha, John Murtha was well-known member of the House of Representatives for at least a couple decades, right? Okay, there are interstates, okay, or a section of interstate, okay, no, uh, named for him. Um, uh, he represented the uh, city of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, uh, which many Americans know because it has suffered two catastrophic floods in its history. Um, and to honor the resiliency of citizens of Johnstown, there is a Johnstown Flood Museum, okay, 
which was built with federal dollars, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, citizens of Johnstown loved him, right? Right. Because he brought, I mean, and this was a town that basically, um, uh, uh, you know, when manufacturing left, uh, when coal was no longer a, a concern, uh, coal use for steel making was no longer a concern, okay, he eased the pain by bringing federal projects to central Pennsylvania. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, and one could argue that Joe Manchin is doing a similar thing. For West Virginia. In West Virginia. Yes. Right. So, so you know, I tell my students all the time, you get a job that you like when you become an adult. You end up doing things, okay, that maybe in the back of your mind, you're like, yeah, I'm not all that comfortable with it, but you like the job. If you're a member of Congress and you like being a member of Congress, okay, are you going to do the things necessary so that you get reelected to keep the job? Right. Right. Are you okay, going to make I mean, the occasional shady deal, but you tell yourself, but I'm doing it for my constituents who are going to, who are going to benefit in the long run and sure. they would reelect me. And yeah. But the Brownlow well, commission, the Brownlow commission was just like, yeah, we got to stop this stuff. Right. <laughs> right. We got to stop this stuff. Right. Except uh, I want to note for the record that Augie's notes say that when fully staffed the the office of the the executive office of the president has how many people two thousand two thousand if, if that if that is economical okay right. then their definition of economical <laughs> is greatly different than my definition <laughs> right and, and, and i'm guys, just saying guys i'm Please forgive me because this is going to take a couple of minutes. I'm going to read you off the list of offices and councils within the executive office of the president, some of which yeah. you may have heard. Right? Y'all might want to, by the way, get a cold drink because this is going to take a minute. Yeah, right. Okay. So, you know, hold on, grab your seat because this is going to take a while. So, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Can we stop there and start again on another episode? Because sure. I, I think that the list of offices is going to be something that we're going to want to probably oh, yeah. spend a I little mean, more time on. Yeah, I mean, in, 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 in listeners, the, the, the number of offices and the stuff they do is just utterly fascinating. So, of course. So let's go ahead and stop there for today, Nia. Okay. And we'll pick it up with uh, 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 the uh, part two, if you will, of the executive office of the president. Or as I like to think of it, a billion tiny offices. Yeah. Like a billion <laughs> points of light. Thanks, Augie. Sure, no problem, Nia. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.